Hello, folks. I'm Arvin, your host and the CEO and chairman at Copper Digital. Thrilled to welcome you to another insightful episode of Health Tech Innovation 2024-25 with another amazing thought leader making significant contributions to the healthcare industry. Today, we have the privilege of hosting a guest with a remarkable 30-year proven track record in healthcare management and operations. Our guest currently leads as the CEO of Galen Medical Group in Chattanooga, Tennessee, overseeing 184 providers and 800 plus employees across 37 locations in Tennessee and Georgia. He played a pivotal role in driving Galen's growth with net revenue soaring from $60 million to over $105 million in just five years. Join us as we explore his wealth of experience in healthcare management and innovation on HealthTech Innovation 2024-25, Charles Lotharm. Welcome, Charles, to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on. Awesome. I've been really looking forward to this discussion, and what better way to start than your inspiring journey? So can you share more about your journey in healthcare management and operations and from managing an ophthalmology practice at 21 to becoming the CEO of Galen Medical Group, what key milestones shaped your career? Truly, I have been very blessed that with each stop along my, my path, I have had a significantly positive role model and mentor along the way who have, have guided me, taught me, given me an opportunity Starting off with, with the very first practice in ophthalmology, it was a family friend of ours, uh, Joe and Barbara Zarzar in Birmingham, and he just let me come in and learn. Um, gave me the opportunity to get experience, to try new things, to teach me. And then from that, I, I was just able to make other contacts and uh, really and truly, each step along the way, have somebody that knew a lot more than I ever did and helped me and taught me and didn't didn't have a, a, a problem guiding me along the path. So I think it's very important to always have those mentors and, and cherish those relationships. I love that. I love that. And, you know, looking at many other successful people, I think that is something um, that is a consistent theme. And in fact, for me as well, whatever little I've achieved, I feel like I owe it to all the amazing people that I met along the way. I mean, without them, none of this is uh, you know was possible and you know you're so right and this is such a great way to process and tell your story and um, you know understand um, you know what's going on around us so this is very impressive thank you appreciate that um, so Galen Medical Group has seen impressive growth under your leadership we know that could you elaborate on the strategies and initiatives that contributed to this significant increase in the net revenue, right? As we talked about from 60 million to 105 million in just five years. Tell me some of, you know, those strategies and initiatives that you think helped. Well, honestly, the, the most important underlying factor is um, we're, we're an independent group medical physicians. So, you know, it, it's owned by the physicians. So that makes us very nimble. That makes us very non-bureaucratic. 
we can make decisions quickly. And I'm very lucky that the doctors really operate in a sense of why not rather than why. So, you know, everything is about learning and it, it's, it's failure is not a word. You know, it, it's just an opportunity to learn what didn't work in that instance, alter, adapt, change, and take advantage of the next opportunity. So even though we're a large organization, even though we do have governance processes that have to be followed, we're still very nimble. We don't report to a corporate entity states away or, or have to worry about shareholders. Our physicians get to make decisions based around what is best for our patients. And so they're willing to try, they're willing to adapt, they're willing to change, they're willing to course correct. So it really makes it easy. Um, and then I'm surrounded by a team of people who are experts at what they do. I get to be the least intelligent person in the room and benefit from all of their expertise and working together as a team, it just works. So we're able to try new things. Uh, COVID really actually worked well uh, in terms of innovation for us. It gave us a chance to go out there and develop new ways to deliver care. Uh, that really was a pivotal point for us. Um, we were fortunate enough too, we've got a high complexity CLIA lab inside our practice. And so we started rapid PCR COVID testing on March the 11th of 2020. So truly in the very early days, our lab was doing 24-hour turnaround with COVID testing. So then we got approached by outside industries and businesses and schools and asked if we could help test for their employees and students. That developed into school-based clinics, workplace clinics. Um, we were able to partner with a local reference lab and develop a saliva-based PCR test. So we were able to do testing for our clients as far away as Washington State when they couldn't get tests local. So our physicians really, their commitment to compassionate care allows us to be innovative, allows us to be creative, take chances, learn from our mistakes, course correct, do it right the next time. So all of those things really leads to organic growth. So we don't strategically acquire, we don't by groups. We don't do any of that. We have physicians and organizations come to us and we're very lucky in that regard. So we've been in practice now over 30 years and it truly is it's truly a team oriented, patient centered thought process. I love that. I think what I'm hearing is that if you stick to the fundamentals and if you've got the basics right, meaning if you have that mindset of agile, where you're learning, you're failing fast, you're just really converting those failures into that opportunity, as you mentioned, to learn from those and not really uh, let those failures affect. And then just have the right focus, which is ultimately focused on the patient. That's so fantastic and so refreshing to hear. You do the right things, and of course, the right things happen. And I know you mentioned that you got lucky, but I think luck happens when you're doing a lot of the, those right things by the book. And and I think uh, that reflects in the way you tell the story. That's fantastic, Charles. Great job there. Could you highlight some of the innovative practices and technologies you've implemented at Gill and Medical Group? Like, you know, we talked about in your intro introduction as well that ASP EMR offering, um, you know, back in 98 and, you know, what impact it had on patient care and operational efficiency. So a long time ago, uh, back when computers were still, um, 
I guess, uh, uh, um, not part of your everyday process. I worked with a, a women's healthcare provider in Northwest Alabama, and we decided to take the leap and try this new thing called electronic medical records. And so we started looking at different systems in 1996. Uh, in 98, we implemented um, what used to be Medic, then was Mysis, then was All Scripts, and now is something else. But um, it was really, it's really interesting because what we did was back when Windows 95 was the standard operating software. Each of our physicians, we got a laptop and we put a game on there that matched their interests. So some like golf, some like <laughs> like solitaire. Anyway, so we got them because we had to get them used to actually using a laptop. I mean, people didn't carry those around. Um, and after the first year, um, we had 10 uh in-house medical records staff and three full-time transcriptionists. The first year after implementation, we had three medical records staff and one part-time transcriptionist. So it truly worked. We committed to it. It worked. So other practices started contacting us and just asking for advice. You know, how'd y'all do it? Did it work? What, what strategies? So we partnered with Medic at that time and said, well, why don't we come up with a way that people could tap into our EMR without having to buy servers and have all that stuff on site? And so what we did is we took our IBM risk box and hooked fractional T's to it, segmented the database, and started rolling it out in a cloud-based solution way back then. So it was really interesting. Uh, got to learn a lot. Um, Got to learn that there is no such thing as a silver bullet when it comes to EMR or implementation, uh, that it is a lot easier to teach a computer how a doctor practices than a doctor how a computer practices. So um, I've seen it uh, come a long way since then. Um, I think that automation uh, in certain circumstances is wonderful. It can't replace the human touch. And we, we, we talk and we preach all the time that what sets us apart from other industry disruptors per se is the relationship that we cultivate and cherish with our patient in that relationship. And I think it's the empathy as well. Yep. And you know, you do the right stuff for the right reasons. Uh, uh, the why has to matter. Um, and unfortunately now healthcare is becoming more and more consumer oriented. So that means not only do we have to take care of that patient relationship, but we have to focus on the experience too. We have to make it convenient. We have to be accessible. We have to be approachable. Uh, we have to provide tools. Um, so it has come a long way. Um, Galen, we, we were able to partner with one of our payer partners actually to develop our My Galen app. And it was a focus around the patient experience. How do they communicate with us? We did this, we started actually right before COVID and it helped us through COVID because it allowed us to not only do telehealth, but also distance care and communicate without having to, you know, come face to face. So um, those type things, th those type things, I think the early types of remote patient monitoring nowadays, um, it, it is what is going to set us apart. It's going to be what is required. Um, you know, you can't have banking now without your cell phone. You can't have everything. So healthcare is going to be there. Um, I don't know that I'm a fan of, you know, Alexa, call my doctor quite yet, but that's, we're headed up against. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, or, or have a doctor virtual visit on your Apple vision pro. I think mm -hmm. uh, the whole spatial computing 
is um, at least looking like it could be a game changer, but you never know until you look back and say, okay, well, yeah, that that was a game changer, but we don't know what's going to happen there. No, but I, I really, um, you know, like and appreciate the way that you describe this. Now, um, like, it seems like you've always been very courageous to try new technologies and you know, get them implemented because even like back when for the EMR and, you know, that initiative or uh, acting as a service provider and helping some of the other, um, you know, hospitals, I think that's of course important. And then now having a mobile application when what sort of challenges um, did you face like in terms of whether a mobile app is needed or not like what challenges you faced and was this a team in-house that you were able to bring or just partner with some technology company so i think the the driving motivation was the recognition of the need and the need was not only to be able to communicate with patients more efficiently and more effectively but it's also realizing that you know we struggle with a shortage of especially primary care providers so how do we take our existing resource and maximize our ability to deliver that resource? Um, this app was a good way to do that because it allowed easier communication between our clinicians and our patients. Um, again, I got fortunate because we found ourselves in the midst of the uh, a pandemic, so obviously a, a need greater than normal. Um, we also found ourselves with a non-traditional partnership with one of our biggest payers. And I'm a big advocate of don't look at the insurance companies necessarily as your competitor or your adversary. Find ways that we can work together. You know, it was it was inherently valuable to them to make their member experience uh, more positive. And at the same time, if we could utilize that motivation and help our patient experience, we both won. So um, we work with a, a, a very small EMR vendor uh, here at Galen. It's called PCIS. They're located in Utah, and they actually built the system for us over a decade ago. So not a large company, but they are very invested in their clients. They're very approachable, uh, and they think outside the box too. So um, I've got an internal tech team. We partnered with their external team to tie it all together. Um, and it really came to, to fruition pretty quickly and pretty easily and pretty inexpensive. Um, but it was able to integrate with our EMR. So it integrates with our portal. It integrates with our pharmacy and allows one platform for communication. Got it. Got it. Now that's, uh, that's fantastic. That's great. So uh, with your involvement in the growth of Galen Medical Group and various other medical associations as well, what role do you see? for healthcare leaders in shaping healthcare policy and advocating for positive changes in both regional and national levels? So I think that's a, that's a broad question. Um, first and foremost, the uh, associations that I'm involved with um, are critical because uh, I have learned more along the way um, than I've ever been able to contribute myself. Uh, and each time we come together for meetings or collaborations. Um, you know, you learn a lot more, maybe what doesn't work even more so than what does work. So, uh, we joke about how many times I've avoided problems rather than even getting good ideas. 
Um, but I think collaboration amongst uh, my colleagues has been invaluable. Um, and then healthcare is a tough business. I mean, it, it truly is. There's a lot of regulatory aspects we've got to keep up with. Um, you know, there's always something new from from the letter agencies, CMS, OCR, all of those things that, that you've got to comply with. Um, protection from patients, HIPAA, all of the things that are required, are good, are allow us to, to do things in the right way. But it's very hard for practices, especially smaller independent practices, to do what they need to do. Um, we talk all the time about, in our role, we've got to learn from yesterday, plan for tomorrow, at the same time as we're doing today. And so the resources, the time, the commitment, um, it, it, it's tough and we can't do it alone. So we need to be able to communicate. We need to be able to collaborate. Uh, we need to be able to do it in such a way that it doesn't violate, uh, you know, FTC guidelines or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, we need to learn from each other. And we also need to learn that working together is better than seeing each other as competition. So um, there's not enough healthcare out there as it is. So the better we do, together we do, the better the patients are going to be. Absolutely. With the current landscape, and there's so much demand and not enough, um, you know, healthcare professionals. And I feel like there's so much that can be automated. And so with your background in automation, can you share examples of how robotic process automation, RPA, or other automated processes have stream, streamlined administrative tasks to increase you know, efficiency and capacity of, of the healthcare providers? So there's a couple of things that we did um, early on, and then we, we've, we've expanded. Um, the system we use, again, it, it's a small company. So a lot of what we develop are third-party applications that we put on top of the database. Um, I was very, very, again, lucky. I found um, an individual who is now our chief data analytics officer who was able to come in and put applications like Power BI on top of our SQL database. So even though our system doesn't have integrated AI within it, we're able to replicate a lot of those functions. So we're able to automate report pulling. We're able to automate gap lists. We're able to automate things like high-risk patient intervention needs. Um, when we see combinations of certain medication and diagnostic criteria, able to alert clinicians to possible problems. Um, our pharmacy, for example, uh, we're able to look at patients who are on higher-risk combination medications, patients that are on chronic uh, meds, um, able to use that data in order to make the clinician's life easier. Because at the end of the day, you're right, we, we've got to do more with less. You know, we're not generating as many physicians as we used to. We're not generating as many nurses as we used to. So how do we take that limited pool and expand their ability to provide care to honestly a, an ever-growing, more potentially sicker pool of patients? Um, and even if this whole value-based thing, which I'm a big proponent of, works and we really move towards preventing rather than treating, we're still dealing with an aging population that's going to require more healthcare infrastructure, more healthcare services. So how do we do that? Automation, technology, that's going to have to be one of our focuses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think more virtual care as well, um, you know, could be 
another important aspect of um, making things more efficient, you know, besides, of course, adding that. And of course, who can forget AI? So what challenges and opportunities do you foresee in the transition towards more autonomous and AI-driven healthcare processes? And how can organizations prepare for this shift? So my my one of my initiatives, my chief quality officer is actually working on is, is there a way to incorporate AI in the very beginning process of a patient triage? You know, I'm a big fan of clinical pathways and we built clinical pathways into our first EMR back in 98, if then statements. Can we do the same thing with an AI tool to where a patient can be guided down a certain series of questions and then those questions and their corresponding answers point that patient to where it needs to go. So uh, instead of my 26 different specialties, for example, having 26 different telephone lines with 26 different infrastructures worth of people answering those lines, could we have a more automated, centralized way for a patient to reach Galen as a whole? And then based on those answers, be directed to the appropriate spot. That would allow us to have more resources for the direct patient care, more emphasis on that patient encounter, uh, less, I think, burden for the patient, maybe less time on hold, maybe less telephone calls, maybe less we'll call you back. All of the things that at the end of the day add time to an already overburdened system. So what we don't want is to decrease the amount of time that the clinician and the physician spends with the patient. We want to eliminate each of those administrative or, or click boxes or things that take up time right now that get in the way of them doing what they're there to do, which is actually take care of our patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially all this in a multi-location setting. Um, I, so, you know, like what key lessons have you learned from managing a large team in a multi-location healthcare setting, and how do you ensure a consistent standard of care across um, diverse sites? So we, we, we laugh all the time about one of our greatest strengths is physician autonomy. And one of our greatest liabilities is physician autonomy. So um, in terms of clinical practice, nobody knows how to do it better than our physicians. So we truly want our physicians to develop uh, the individualized care that they provide to our patients. But at the end of the day, you're right, um, there has to be standards of care. We have committees, we have task force, we have um, pharmacy committees where we look at drug utilization, we look at dosing, we look at uh, how do we use remote patient monitoring, how do we use things like um, diagnostic tools, um, clinical competencies, how do we make sure that each of our um, nurses that blood pressure they take is actually accurate. How do we know that when we stick a patient that you know, our phlebotomists are doing the best job possible? So our clinicians are really dedicated to that ongoing education, ongoing clinical competency and evaluation. They developed what's called a TIDE team, training, implementation, uh, implementation, development, and evaluation. So we have a team of people that do those functions, nurses, clerical support, clinical support that go out and not only provide front-end training, but reoccurring training as well. Um, our physicians are very committed to collaboration. 
it's it's really nice to have all these specialties because my primary care can pick up the phone and call one of my endocrinologists and get real-time answers on type 2 diabetes. Or my pediatrician can pick up the phone and call one of my asthma and allergy specialists and get an answer for the patient right there. So cross-collaboration, um, treatment in terms of a, of a group-oriented focus towards our patient. Um, and again, allowing our sites to do things a little different because healthcare is still local. You know, patients don't really make appointments with Galen. They make appointments with Dr. McCauley or Dr. Burroughs or Dr. Wiley, you know, and that's where we want it to be. We want it to be that individual relationship, not with just this corporate name or entity. Got it. Got it. No, and that that um, makes sense. Um, so we talked about the My Galen app that you created. Um, that's, that's wonderful. And how has the adoption of mobile health applications impacted patient engagement? And, uh, what are some considerations that healthcare organizations should keep in mind when implementing such technologies? Like, would you call it overall, you know, something, um, that helped you increase that engagement? And if so, how, how did you measure that? So something as simple as communicating lab results. Um, you know, in the old days, we either used to have to mail those lab results or call the patient and leave a message and then call us back and they leave a message. But being able to deliver just that one subset of, of tasks to patients electronically truly freed up just a ton of resources. So something as simple as, hey, your CBC was normal. Let's get you back in for a recheck in three months. Being able to automate that. Now, there's still patients that still want us to pick up the phone, call, great, we'll, we'll still do that. But if 80% of those type of communications can be facilitated utilizing electronic delivery, that's a game changer. Because then we can use that same resource, that same infrastructure, and focus on that face-to-face -face need with the patient. So just things like that. You know, we've done appointment reminders for a long time, but incorporating... Um, you know, the ability for a patient to electronically input demographic changes and save that time at the front desk when they come in. Uh, just those little things, things that maybe aren't the flashiest, the, the most gimmicky kind of things that technology can provide, but truly the blocking and tackling the fundamentals of what makes a medical practice successful. Right information at the right time, right way to communicate. Those those really are, are, are game changers. Um, they're not perfect yet, um, but it has truly provided a way to free up not only the nursing staff, but the physicians themselves and the physicians be able to communicate with that patient in between patients at off times, down times, things like that. That's wonderful. So it's had a tremendous impact. Technology has, mobile apps has, and, you know, in patient engagement, improving the patient experience. So that's wonderful. But in your experience, how has the landscape of healthcare regulations evolved? What challenges do healthcare leaders face in staying compliant with the ever-changing regulations, including uh, patient privacy and, uh, you know, against hacking and cyber security and threats, which are becoming more and more pop, you know, prominent after the pandemic as well. 
Well, we, we don't have to tell you, but we live in a world where every day, you know, the, the ransomware is who's next. Um, and it is, it is an ever growing threat. Um, it's, it's funny because it used to be when I first started this, you know, technology was, um, as long as you knew how to plug in a serial cable to your printer, you pretty much had an IT department, right? So, (laughs) you know, now it's, it's, uh, you've got to have duo authentication. You've got to have biometrics. Um, how do we develop a redundant, um, infrastructure, co-location, things like that, things that, that never were an issue. Um, but it's critical. It's important. Uh, it has really taken a, a, a shift. And the problem is if you look at the, the healthcare reimbursement landscape, all of the things that we're having to do to increase the protection of our environment, it's not being reciprocated in insurance companies paying us more to be able to do that. So you've got to operate on leaner and leaner margins. Now, granted, that serves as motivation to try to use automation and and do things more with less. But, you know, the way we communicate is is predicated on being able to communicate securely, safely, and at the end of the day, take all the necessary steps that you can. Now, I don't know that you can ever protect in everything. you know, four or five years ago, it was, is somebody going to break in physically and steal paper charts or be careful where you leave, you know, your prescription pads or things like that. Nowadays we have, uh, actually I have one person on our staff dedicated to trying to send phishing messages to our 800 members to do education on don't open these kinds of emails. So mm, wow. even positions. It's, you know, and so now it's, all right, every time I get an email with an attachment, I send it to my CIO and say, okay, is this you trying to catch me or can I really open this attachment? But we've had to do things to where, take a breath, you know, look at this, make sure that it is legitimate and we're not opening ourselves up to, you know, a ransomware. Um, and, And it's scary because, you know, someone can break into your system and leave, a, a malicious device that maybe not come active for months down the road. So um, it, it takes ever degree of vigilance. It takes an ever degree of of planning and um, you know truly investing in those those knowledge sets that are outside of healthcare, but now are are integral to healthcare. Absolutely, absolutely. We cannot cut corners in healthcare, especially in security, in patient privacy. And I think that's why regulations, um, you know, are, are important and critical. And, you know, ensuring that we're doing it right uh, creates that much safer environment. So it makes sense. Now, how do you address the digital divide in healthcare, ensuring the technology-enabled services are accessible to all patients regardless of the socioeconomic factors or geographical location. I mean, that's got to be something very important as well for an organization in its, in its mission to make healthcare uh, more accessible. Well, in, in sort of tying into our, just our previous conversation, um, we've got to design it in such a way that it's secure, that it is um, restrictive to the patient 
themselves, but not make it so complicated that our patients can't figure out how to access their own information or so onerous that they just give up, pick up the phone and we're back to square one again. So we try to design things around a balancing act between what's the, the most secure way we can deliver this in the easiest way for them to access it, utilize it, and it be beneficial to them. Um, and I don't know that there, again, is a magic answer to that. Um, it is it is ever challenging because, again, um, how do we verify that we're actually talking to you? How do I know that it's you accessing your records? Or how do I provide for the ability for your caregiver to access your records? Because more and more, we're dealing with the kids of the parents who are taking their parents to see us. Um, or, you know, uh, uh, parents dealing with their children's information. And so there's a lot of, back to your regulatory question, once people reach a certain age, I'm sorry, but they have to tell us that mom and dad, you can have access to their records. You know, and that's just where we live today. So, um, it is a balancing act. Um, and in Tennessee, you know, Chattanooga is, is known as the gig city. So, I mean, we, we're very fortunate to be in Chattanooga because we've got tremendous uh, infrastructure in terms of, of technology. But we still have a lot of rural areas around us, too. We still have a lot of areas that you're going to drive through. That you better have gasoline and you better have whatever you need because you don't have cell phone coverage. So balancing between the, the people that have five gig internet at their house and some that are still on a lucky if they get one bar. So that platform that we use has to be able to be scalable. And we have to be able to deliver information in such a way that it's either in a rich format or in a basic format. Um, but fortunately, again, I've got very creative folks that are able to, to structure those delivery methodologies specific to patient needs or patient requests. No, that's wonderful. All considering all that and considering at that point what state the patient is in and depending on their bandwidth, there can't be just one solution that fits all. Now, um, very, very interesting that you shared that with me. So looking ahead, what emerging technologies do you believe will have the most profound impact on the healthcare landscape and how can leaders prepare for their integration? So I think every day that, that you open up any of the, the industry articles, you know, you see AI, AI, AI. And, you know, I think there's no such thing as, as one AI. I mean, AI is this huge, broad uh, term. And, I, and, you know, it's I'm eager to see where it goes. I'm also very scary that we might be opening a Pandora's box. You know, when, when, when an AI platform can answer the ABME test, you know, better than a human physician, we might be in trouble. Uh, there might be some, some, you know, Terminator days ahead of us. But I think if we are able to incorporate those tools around the premise of how do we utilize technology to enhance the delivery of services to our patients, how do I free my physicians up from anything that doesn't require MD behind the name to do, then that's where I'm going to start. And so maybe it's looking across our different specialties, looking at the pain points 
unique to the delivery of care, even down to the individual clinician level and seeing what's available. I think the triage functions are going to be key. I think that's really where maybe that's something that we can see tangible benefit from to start with. Second to that is, can we incorporate technology to reduce avoidable errors? You know, are there things that we could put in place that maybe screen in the background that are medication contraindications or uh, treatment concerns or, hey, we're seeing these lab levels continue to increase. So maybe we need to intervene quicker. Um, I think things like that, that would give flags or information in a push environment to our clinicians rather than having to rely on a full type of environment. Uh, I think that's where it's going to be most beneficial to start with. Uh, and I think that's where we're going to get buy-in from the industry because we're going to, again, back to our limited resource, how do we do more with less? And less, I mean, that actual human clinician talent. I've got to be able to expand that time. Awesome. Awesome. Now, it's fantastic to learn about what are some things that you're looking forward to. And looks like, of course, AI is a game changer. And it's not just AI, but all the things that AI is going to affect, including genomics and the advancements in um, you know, the kind of medication, the personalized medication, and, you know, of course, the, you know, patient experience starting from at the very beginning, triaging, and, you know, that's an important use case where at Copper Digital, we've actually created an application for patient intake as well, uh, you know, just to play with it and play with how AI can can be utilized. But of course, you know, the customer service, I mean, there's just so much, um, but this has been really fantastic. And you know, as we wrap up this fascinating episode of Health, Health Tech Innovation 2024-25, I'd like to extend our deepest gratitude to you for sharing your wealth of insights and experiences in healthcare and technology. Charles, your journey, commitment to innovation and advocacy for positive relationships is truly inspiring. And um, I'd like to thank our listeners. Thank you for joining us on this insightful exploration of the future of health tech. If you found today's discussion as compelling as we did, don't forget to subscribe for more engaging conversations with industry leaders. And remember, the pulse of innovation beats within all of us. Until next time, stay curious, stay connected, and stay tuned for more groundbreaking conversations on health tech innovation 2024-25. Bye-bye. Thank you.